Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you're visiting with us today for the first time, I'm Pastor Rob. I'm the the lead pastor here. I have the privilege to open God's Word to God's people week after week. And we are journeying through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And today we pick up in chapter 13, verse 1. If you would, join with me in a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we love you so much, and it is truly a privilege and a joy to gather together in your name, to gather as sons and daughters, to gather as Christians, followers of Jesus, and to celebrate week by week on this very special day, the Lord's Day. And I thank you that we've had the uh, privilege to sing to you already and to know, God, that you delight in our singing as we pour our hearts out before you, as we express our gratitude and our devotion through song, as we sing of your mighty and wonderful works. And so, Father, now as we continue on into the Bible study, I pray that you would continue to be exalted and that the Holy Spirit would really speak to us through your word, your inspired, sufficient word, that you would bless us, Lord, that you would build up the body of Christ, that you would Give us the strength that we need to continue on in this Christian walk. It is challenging, Father, and we do grow weary. And I pray that you would refresh and encourage us today by your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you might not know this about me, but years ago I developed a very severe eye disease. It was repulsive to others, in fact, and it impaired my ability to even have healthy relationships. It led to intense bouts of anxiety and depression and isolation, and it could have even been terminal. Now, when I say I, I mean I as in the letter I, not E-Y-E, as in it's all about me. That That was the disorder that I had all about me. That's how I lived my life. But when I met Christ, that changed dramatically. That changed dramatically. I came to realize that there is true joy in serving God and living a life that is geared towards serving and blessing other people. Though I must admit that that disease still lies dormant within my system, and it can reemerge from time to time, and I can begin to think that it's all about me, right? Something that we have to regularly battle against as Christians. Well, that in large part is what we're going to be considering today as we study through John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, studying what it is to be a servant, to be served by the Master, And that's what uh, I would title this, Served by the Master. A little subtitle might be A Master Class in Serving. That's what we have before us in this text today. Now, last week we finished chapter 12, and as I have said many times already, that was the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. For those 12 chapters, he was teaching, preaching, healing, so on and so forth, but He concluded that, we concluded that last week, and now Jesus is going to turn his attention to his disciples, and this begins his private ministry for the next several chapters. Now, chapters 13 through 17 are a single unit commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. You probably already heard me use that phrase. That's what this portion of scripture 
is called oftentimes. Chapters 1 through 12 took place in a span of approximately three years. Chapters 1 through 12. Chapters 13 through 17 take place over a span of a few hours. So it slows way down as we get to this portion of Scripture right here. And uh, Jesus has less than 24 hours to live at this point. So we really are in the last moments of Jesus' life. These last moments leading up to his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. And so these are like the last words of a dying man, essentially. This is what we're looking at. Sometimes referred to as a swan song. We tend to, uh, to really pay close attention to the last words that a man or a woman has to share before they pass on from this life to glory. And so they're very special words, very weighty words, very intimate words. They're very significant. These are the things that Jesus would want the disciples to get. It was imperative. And what does Jesus ultimately do? He serves his disciples. He serves them in a very graphic and beautiful way. And that's what we're going to consider today. That's what we will look at. Now, Jesus is the greatest example of servitude this world has ever known. In fact, it was revolutionary, revolutionary, the way that Jesus came to serve and his perspective on service. It was really an upside-down perspective. It's a perspective that the world just simply does not, does not share. Now, in Mark chapter 10, I think this whole thing is, is laid out beautifully for us by Jesus. The disciples would often compete against each other and try to figure out who was the greatest. You know, they, they believed that Jesus was going to come back, set up God's kingdom on earth, and that they were going to reign alongside Jesus, and they were always fighting amongst themselves to see who was going to get to be the one reigning right next to Jesus, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom next to Jesus himself, right? And so in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, we drop down into one of those scenarios, and Jesus calls them to himself, and he says this. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. So the, the rulers, the leaders, those who are outside of God's covenant community, Jesus said that when they have authority, it, it often goes to their head. It corrupts, and they wield that power like a hammer or a sword. They are domineering. They want glory. They want status. Jesus says, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there it is. That was Jesus' mission statement. He lived this out perfectly, and this is exactly what we're going to see in our text today and in the coming weeks. And so Jesus already spelled it out, and Jesus regularly taught his disciples that the true path to greatness is to get low and stay low, to serve the Lord in humility, not to exalt yourself, but to humble yourself and to let God be the one who does the exalting. Amen? To take the path of the servant. If you are a Christian, then you are a servant, point blank. If you are not serving, then there's a disconnect. I don't say that to guilt anybody or condemn anybody, but we might need to do some tune-up. We might need to take a serious look inwardly and, and try to figure out where are we at. 
Are we following our master's example? Are we living in the light of his life? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Because as a Christian, brothers and sisters, you have been served by the master. Amen? You have been served by the master. And we have an example to follow. So that's what we're going to look at today. So really, this text, verses 1 through 17, I would break it up into two parts, two main sections. And the first section is... To belong to Jesus is to be served by Jesus. To belong to Jesus is to be served by Jesus. You must be served first. Amen? And so under this, we're going to consider the types of service that we see on display. So A, it's a loving service. That's the kind of service that Jesus renders to his own, a service of love. So look with me at verse number 1 in John chapter 13. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the what? To the end, to the very end. So here we have arrived at the final Passover. The final Passover. This is full of significance. It's symbolic. It looks to the past when God delivered his people out of Egypt. Moses came and he was God's man, God's appointed man. And he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Let God's people go. And we know Pharaoh didn't. And so all of these plagues came down upon the land, upon the people of Egypt, until finally Pharaoh did break and he let the people go, and that's what the Passover represented. And so people were always celebrating the Passover, looking back to this time of redemption. Now, Jesus would also fulfill the Passover, and so this would have great significance in the future. People didn't realize it at the time, but we begin to see this when John the Baptist in John chapter 1 says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a reference to the Passover, right? And so Jesus fulfilled the Passover as he is the sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the world. Amen? And so that's what the Passover represented. Jesus knew that. This particular Passover was quite special to Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So I think about this sometimes. Jesus knew what he came to do. And every Passover, he was present. And every single Passover was a reminder of what was to come for him in the end of his life. And so every single year as people were celebrating this Passover, year after year, he was reminded of what was to come, what he came to do, and it was getting one year closer. Imagine living with that in front of you, knowing that that would be your end. And every single year it was coming. But Jesus said with a fervent desire, I have desire to partake of this with you before I suffer. And we know this is where Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, where he announced that It would be through his broken body and shed blood that the new covenant would be ratified, would be instituted. And so this was just full of all kinds of significance here. 
And this first verse right here, John 13, 1, serves as a, a transition or a prelude to the, what is to follow here. Jesus has now concluded his public ministry, and because he loves his own, he is setting his attention on them. I think that's significant to me, because if I knew that in a matter of hours that was it, what was about to await what was coming, I don't know that I could do what Jesus, in fact, I know I couldn't do what Jesus is about to do. I would be pretty upset, I think, with the disciples. I would be like, you know what, get out of here. This is your fault that I even had to come here in the first place. You know, and, uh, but not so with Jesus, not so with Jesus. He loved them completely, and that's the idea, completely to the full, ultimately. He loved them to completion. And how does he spend his last moments? Loving, serving, and preparing his disciples. I, and I, I love that. He's preparing them for what's to come, what awaits them immediately, and then what will follow. And he gives them all of these special teachings in the following chapters. You know, Jesus' love is so unlike our love, and it is beyond human comprehension. It just really is. We'll never truly understand the depths of God's love in this life. We just won't. But one thing we can know is that Jesus' love is so much greater than anything that we've ever experienced or known. In a matter of hours, he's going to be betrayed by one of those closest to him. He's going to be abandoned by all. He's even going to be denied. Peter's going to deny even having known him, and yet he loves them to the very end and serves them, takes the posture of a servant. Jesus loved them deeply, and this is what compelled him to serve. Love is what compels us. It has to be. There are all kinds of motivators, motivating factors in this life that compel us to do one thing or another, but in Christianity, when it comes to knowing God, walking with God, serving God, serving others, love has to be the essence. It has to be the foundation. It has to be the core, the driving force behind what we do ultimately. It's the only thing that's really going to sustain us. It's the only thing that really sustains. And Paul knew this. I mean, consider the kinds of things that Paul went through, the great apostle Paul. And he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. That's what compels us, the love of Christ. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves. Listen to that. They should no longer live for themselves, but they would live for the one who died for them and rose again. That's what compelled Paul. Paul was driven by the love that Christ had for him such that he would no longer live for himself, but live for the one that died for him and rose again. Amen? That's what it's all about, brothers and sisters. And so it has to start there, being loved by God, being served by God. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, if your sins have been forgiven because of his sacrifice at the cross, if you have the Holy Spirit of God residing within you because you've been born again, then you have received the love of God. The love of God has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have been served by God in a very radical, transformative kind of way. Amen. You have been served. And it has to start there. It has to start there. We're not qualified. We're not equipped 
We don't have what it takes to serve unless we have been served. Much like forgiveness, until you have been forgiven, we can't truly forgive, right? And I've noticed that. I've seen that. There are people who try to forgive, but they can't because they haven't first experienced the forgiveness of Christ. And so it's kind of like that here. If you really want to serve God and serve Him well, you have to be served first, bottom line. And so you have to know and experience the love of Christ so that you can be compelled by that love. You can't be compelled by something that you don't have. And so do you have the love of Christ? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to Him? You must. I implore you, I beg of you, if you haven't, trust Him today. Know the love of Christ which passes understanding. Well, the next thing we see, verses 2 through 5, it's a humble service. The service that Jesus renders, it's a humble service. I want to spend a little bit more time on this. A lot of practical application here. So look at verse 2. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, when you read verses 2 and 3, supper being ended, Satan had put it into Judas's heart to betray. Jesus knows that he's going back to the Father. You read that, you don't expect verses 4 and 5. That in light of all of that, what does Jesus do? He steps away from the table and girds himself in a, in a servant's uh, towel and begins to wash their feet. That's pretty anticlimactic, you know? Well, we need to understand a little something about the setting here. It was customary in those days for the host of the house to make provision for the people to have their feet washed. You know this, guys. We've talked about this. Bible students, we've talked about this many times over. And so that was customary. That was hospitality. That was a grace that would be offered at, at, at a person's home when they had guests there. And so this was a duty that would typically be assigned to the to the lowest servant of the household. To the lowest, it was the most menial task, most uh, humble task, and this would be assigned to the lowest servant. Now, we know they borrowed the space. They borrowed the space to share this dinner, so there was no host. There was no host. The, the owner of the place was not present. It was just Jesus and his disciples, and clearly none of the disciples had taken this task upon themselves. Now, I want to show you a picture. Uh, Allie, if you could throw that up there. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Um, this is what it would have looked like. Uh, this is a triclinium, and people would be reclining, and as you can see, their feet are kind of out behind them. And so oftentimes, people might even be sitting a little lower to the ground. The table might even be lower than that. It might be flat on the floor, and they're really, you could almost have your feet like in someone else's face. It's pretty uncomfortably close. And so in that day and age, obviously, uh, the climate, uh, you see they often, they wore sandals. Um, the roads would be nasty, a lot of livestock on the roads as well. They would uh, have to uh, walk through that, that area. And so people's feet would be pretty gross. And so um, 
you could see why they would need to have their feet washed. I don't know if we'll need to look at this again today, but we might. So anyways, that's, you, can, you can put that down. And so people would have, you know, feet funk, funky feet. And uh, that's something that would have to be dealt with. And, and you know, we understand that, married, married couples in here. You know what it's like when, when the spouse has funky feet and you, you want to tell her, hey, put your shoes back on. <laughs> Just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, but anyways, that was a, that was a, it was a very real need. And so um, the disciples weren't about to take that task upon themselves, obviously. And Luke indicates for us that in the same setting, they were, this would be, again, one of those scenarios where they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Who's going to be the greatest? And so Jesus is sitting here watching them, listening, observing. And while they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus quietly steps away from the table and he takes the place of the lowest servant in a surprising turn of events. Now, John goes out of his way to highlight the fact that Judas is present. Judas is sitting here. You know, I would have waited till Judas left personally. You know, that's just, again, that's my, my kind of love. You know Judas is going to be leaving soon, so I'll just push the foot washing back just a little bit later. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And, uh, you know, this it just goes without saying, this is humility beyond comparison. This is humility on a level that we can't truly fathom or comprehend. And this summarizes what Christ ultimately came to do. That's what this story really is a picture of. This is true condescension, Jesus, who dwelt in all of eternity in complete and total heavenly glory alongside the Father, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, went from the highest place imaginable to the lowest place imaginable. He descended from glory took the form of a human, of a, of, a, of a servant, and he died the most horrific death that you could imagine, that we could imagine, so that we would have life. That's, that is the kind of, that is the, the link to which our Savior stooped, if you will. And if we are Christians, then we too should model this kind of humility, because again, we've experienced this. We've been served like that. Amen. 1 Peter says it like this, chapter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. So there should be a culture of mutual submissiveness and humility amongst the body of Christ. Amen? Peter says that we ought to do that. And another reason he says is because God loves humility and he hates pride and he resists the proud. Have you ever, I've thought about this before. Some, some translation says he opposes. You know what it is to oppose? It's to stand opposite of. You want to you go somewhere and someone's standing right in front of you and they're not going to allow you to move forward. They're going to do everything they can to stay in your way and stop you. That's the idea of to resist or to oppose. So if you have God resisting you, if you have God opposing you, that's a bad place to be. 
So the Bible says that God opposes and resists the proud, but He gives grace. He showers grace upon those who humble themselves. And Peter says, therefore, humble yourself. Be clothed in humility. Walk in humility. Humble yourselves. Chuck Swindoll, uh, just legendary Bible teacher, author, he makes a couple of uh, observations about humility in this, in this text. He says, first off, humility does not announce itself. You notice that? Jesus just kind of slipped away from the table. He didn't stand up and say, okay, everybody, pay close attention to what you are about to observe because it's going to be amazing, right? And I say that facetiously, but, you know, again, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Be discreet. And Jesus did not wave a flag for everyone to see before he did what he did. Now, he will certainly unpack the significance of this to his disciples, but I think uh, just the quietness of this moment is significant. Humility is being willing to receive service without embarrassment. We're going to see that in a moment. Uh, Peter's not going to respond very well to this. Sometimes humility is letting other people be a blessing to you. And sometimes we have a real hard time with that. I had someone tell me early on in my Christian walk, you've got to let people bless you because God calls people to be a blessing. And so you might be uh, hindering something that God's trying to do through somebody else. And so you've got to let people be a blessing to you. You've got to be willing to receive service. Humility doesn't discriminate. Uh, as I have already said, Jesus washes the feet of Judas. That's amazing to me. That's shocking, I think. And so sometimes we might, be, we might discriminate. We might decide who we want to serve and who we don't want to serve, who's worthy of service and who is not, something that we have to guard against. It's sinful. Humility turns the structure of authority upside down. That's what Jesus did. The, the least shall be the greatest. The greatest of all shall be the servant of all. And humility includes serving others, not just the Lord. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. But sometimes I think we have this mindset, I'll serve the Lord, but, you know, His people, I just mm, can't stand them, you know. I've heard people say things like that uh, on a number of occasions, unfortunately. We've got to watch out. I would add to that, humility is more of an action than a disposition. Humility is more of an action than a disposition, because we can always carry ourselves in a, in a very meek and mild way, um, but that's not what comes out when the test really comes, right? And so uh, it's not so much a person's posture as much as it is their actions. And so I'll just, you know, talk about that a little bit. You know, um, the, the reality is, is that we're not humble for the most part, I would say. Uh, it's, it's hard to walk in humility. It's very challenging. We need God's grace. We need God's spirit. We need sanctification. We need all of that to be humble. We live in an age of absolute offense. Everybody is outraged over everything, just overly opinionated. Everybody is an expert on everything. I've come to really see that in the last couple of years, but uh, just I mean, if you pay attention to that, man, everybody knows something about everything. They are an expert in all areas. That's kind of the age, the information age. We live in that, right? People are easily outraged. And so 
don't think for a second that we're not influenced by that, that that hasn't crept into the church, that the church isn't full of folks that are easily offended, overly opinionated, super sensitive. And, you know, one way you can detect this is people tend to be very humble when it comes to receiving compliments. Oh, you know, praise the Lord. You know, they don't, they, they receive a compliment with great humility, but turn that compliment into a critique and see how fast that humility stays intact, right? Turn it into a correction and see how fast that demeanor departs, right? And I, I'm not saying that in a critical sense, such is the case with me and all of us. If we're honest with ourselves, it's hard to be critiqued. It's hard to be corrected. And so, but that's humility, and that's, that's just a very real part of humility. And we live in a, in a day and age where that, it's hard to find, but you know what? God loves it. God loves humility. God loves people who love correction, who will learn from critique, who will always be teachable, who are willing to humble themselves and serve the way that Jesus did. Amen? I have seen some shocking examples of this in my life um, in Tennessee. So this is nobody, anybody here would know. Um, there was a, a guy that came into the church that I just thought, man, this guy is uh, hes a gift to the church. I mean, he just seemed like he had it, had it all together. And I was excited because I was going to be leaving soon and coming here. And I knew that he had been a pastor before and he just seemingly came out of nowhere and People make excellent, uh, oftentimes, first impressions, and I just was singing this guy's praise, and uh, and one day uh, it was there was um, Pastors Appreciation Month. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's uh, well, I'm not gonna say because I'm we- I feel weird even talking about it. Anyways, it was Pastor Appreciation Month, and so somebody I can't remember who it was. They they were up there and they were sharing and expressing gratitude for the pastors, and that was all well and fine. Well, uh, a few days later, midweek service, I was in the foyer doing something, and this gentleman came in, and for the first time ever, he looked, I mean, furious. I never saw this side of him before. I'm like, brother, you okay? And he was not, and he let me know in so many words just how furious he was. And his reason was because I used to be a pastor, and nobody thanked me and I was like, whoa, man. I was like, first of all, I don't think anybody even knows that you were a pastor. You're new here. But secondly, to, to demand appreciation like that, that's, that's deadly serious stuff, right? And so I thought that, that was just the beginning of, of the end, unfortunately. And so these kinds of things are ever-present. They just are. We have to watch out for that. We have to guard it in our own hearts because it's there. Generally, it's a lot more subtle than that. It's just a real under-the-surface, smoldering kind of a thing that we have to watch out for and be aware of and pray against and repent of and really pray that we walk in humility as our Lord and Savior walked in humility. Amen? All right, well, the next thing we see here, spiritual service. So we saw loving service, humble service, spiritual service. Verses 6 through 11. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon 
Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. Now, Peter expresses a righteous outrage that Jesus would do such a thing. And this isn't uncommon for Peter. Peter is probably startled and somewhat embarrassed by this. Um, let's throw this screen back up, that, um, that uh, triclinium, if we can. Now, we don't know this for sure, but we think, based on some different passages and the culture, uh, kind of how this would work traditionally, this would be... Um, the host would typically sit right here. This is where that spot would be. The, the kind of the right-hand man to the host, the close friend to the host would sit right here. And so does anybody, so who, who would be here? Do we just give it a guess? Shout it out if you know it. Jesus. Okay, good. That's, just, that's the, always the safe answer. That's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. One of my professors always does that. Jesus. Okay, so if Jesus is here, then who would be sitting here? Exactly. Why? Because the Bible says he was leaning against Jesus' chest, right? So that, that's how that would work. Now, who would be sitting here? Jesus says, the one to whom I dip and hand the bread. That would be Judas. And that is the guest of honor spot. That is the guest of honor. Now, the as you go on down the line, it gets less and less. This will be the, the guest of dishonor, essentially. Anybody know who might be sitting there? Peter. It would seem that Peter's sitting there because Peter and John are gesturing to each other when Jesus starts talking about who is uh, going to betray him. And we, we're told that Peter gestures to, uh, <clears throat> to John to kind of figure out who it is. He probably throws a grape at him from across the table, you know. And so um, that just, uh, you know, by, if that is in fact the case, we can't be sure, but Jesus has already made his way around the table and washed everybody's feet, and then he comes around to Peter. And so Peter's watching this, and by the time Jesus makes his way around, who knows what's going on in his mind. He might be sitting there thinking, I have, just wait till he gets, gets over here. He, he already had a well-polished answer, Jesus Never. You shall never wash my feet. Or maybe he was embarrassed that he hadn't thought to do it sooner. Who knows? Well, he refuses Jesus' gracious act, and Jesus tells him, you're going to know. You may not understand right now what's happening, but you will know soon. Still, Peter is unwilling to consent to Jesus taking such a low posture for him. And so now Jesus warns him. He says that if he refuses, he will have no part with him. I'm not 100% sure what that means, except it communicates this idea of separated. You'll be separated from me. And now that scared Peter. Peter, I love his response to this, just the humility, the extreme repentance. <clears throat> he, he, the thought of anything separating him from his Lord. He just could not handle the thought of it. And so he goes to the extreme opposite end. It says, wash my hands, wash my head. And I love that. That's beautiful. And I'm sure that Jesus loves that too. 
Now, Jesus is actually speaking of something spiritual here. He's speaking metaphorically, and we know that based on what he says to Peter, because he says he who is bathed needs only to wash his, his feet, but is completely clean. Then he says, not all of you are clean, speaking of Judas. So obviously we understand Jesus is talking about something else here. There's something deeper going on. And so what Jesus is doing is he's illustrating a spiritual principle with a physical reality. And we know Jesus has done that all throughout the Gospel of John. So totally consistent here. And that's, that's what's happening. So Jesus is dealing with a spiritual truth here. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. So as I have already mentioned, the people's feet would get gross fast. And so people might be bathed, but as soon as they walk out into the streets, their feet are dirty all over again, which necessitated continual foot washings. They would have to wash their feet far more frequently than they would actually have to bathe, right? And so... um, This goes back to kind of what I was saying in the beginning. What Jesus is saying to them here is is that you are clean, Peter. You're saved, but you need to be washed. You need to be washed repeatedly. You need to be served by Jesus. We're saved if you trust in Christ, but living in this world, being in this flesh, having Satan as an enemy of our soul, we just get defiled, we get defiled in this world. That's why I've said before, even from the pulpit, I know I preach long sermons, and I've said the amount of stuff that you guys take in that is thrown at you all week long, if I could just have one hour to try to wash some of that off with God's Word and counteract the effects of what happens to you out in the world, right? Because that is the case. That's the way that it is. And Jesus said, you're going to need to be continually washed, continually cleansed. If you're going to be a servant of mine, if you're going to walk with me and stay close to me, then you're going to need to be regularly confessing sin and being cleansed. Now, this isn't talking about losing salvation because Jesus said you're already clean. You're bathed. You're washed. There's one among you who is not. And so that would be Judas who was not saved. But Peter and the others were. And he said that even though such is the case, you're still going to need to be cleansed regularly, having this idea of ongoing repentance and confession. And we know it's a day-by-day kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, day-by-day we have to go to the Lord and say, forgive me, wash me clean, you know, use me for your glory, help me. And so Jesus is imparting this principle to them now. He's going to be leaving, he's going to be going, they're going to be here, and this is going to need to be a regular, ongoing part of their life if they're going to walk with him and serve him. You must be served by Jesus, one, to be empowered by Him. You must be regenerated. You must be saved. You must be born again, right? There, there is that. You have to be served by Jesus in that way. But you also must be regularly served uh, through being cleansed as you confess your sins so you can be in a healthy place of service. It's hard to serve the Lord if you are in all kinds of sin, you know, if, if you're just twisted up in a pretzel because of the world and the world's influences and you've got all the grime and the filth of, of sin, it's hard to serve the Lord. So Jesus is saying, you've got to stay close to me. You've got to stay cleansed. You've got to stay clean. You have to walk in regular confession and repentance. And so there lies the principle. So you have to be served by Jesus in order 
to be able to serve Him. You must first be served. Amen? And that brings us to our second part of the sermon, and we'll move more quickly from this point forward. So point number two, to belong to Jesus is to serve Jesus and others. To belong to Jesus is to serve Jesus and others. So here, A, it's a reciprocal service. Reciprocal service. Verse 12, 12 through 14. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, Jesus, upon finishing this act, upon washing their feet, he sits down and he makes application here. He says, do you know what I have done to you? Do you understand the significance of what just took place? The master stooped to serve. Jesus says that they rightly acknowledge him as teacher and Lord. You call me teacher and Lord, so I am. So they got that right. So then it follows that they would do the same for one another, Jesus says. For one another. If we have been served by our teacher and master, then we ought to do the same. It just follows, does it not? That's not complicated. That's, that's basic logic. It's simple enough to understand. So we reciprocate our love and service to Jesus by extending it to each other. That's how we do it. That's how we serve Jesus by serving others. Did you know that? We serve Jesus by serving others. This phrase here, you have to wash one another's feet. That's a significant little phrase. You oftentimes hear the one another commands. You ever heard of that? The one another's. That, that phrase is used repeatedly in the New Testament. And I think something like close to 50 times it's referring to how we interact with Christians in the church. Bear one another's burdens. Confess our sins to one another. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Love one another. Stir one another up to love and good works. On and on. There are so many one another commands that are given. And here Jesus says that we are to serve one another. There it is. We must serve one another. Now, Jesus so closely identifies with his own that we are serving him, as I already said. What did Jesus say to Saul? Remember when he stopped him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Was he persecuting Jesus? Who was he actually persecuting? He was persecuting the church. But Jesus so closely identifies with his followers, with his saints, that to persecute them is to persecute Jesus. And so when we do something to the followers of Jesus, we're doing that for him. Now, 1 John uses a similar kind of logic here to express our love for God. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So if we say that we love God, but we don't love God's people, there's a real disconnect. And John says, how can you even say such a thing? 
You know, th- this would be the visible, tangible expression. This is how we can most readily and effectively express our love for God is by loving each other. And if you can't even do that, if you can't even love the person that you can see right in front of you, how can you say that you love God whom you can't see, right? Well, the same is true of serving. The same is true of serving. If you say that you're a servant of God, you're going to serve His people. You can't see God, but you can see God's people, and you can see their needs. And if you shut your heart up from them and don't serve those needs, how can you say that you love Jesus? Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So how do we sow to the Spirit? Verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, now listen to this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So where are you sowing? We're told that where you sow, that's where and what you're going to reap. And it says, do not grow weary of doing good. In due time, you will reap if you do good. And do good to all, but especially the household of faith. That's where we start. That is the beginning point. Serving God's people, loving God's people. Amen? And so that's what we must do. That is reciprocal service. We return the service that we have received from Jesus by serving Jesus' people, serving each other. Amen? Well, the next thing we see, it's a, it's B, it's an imitative service. Imitative service. Verse 15, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Serving is not complicated because Jesus literally gives us an example to follow. Now, Jesus did what others clearly did not want to do. So that's principle number one, having a willingness to do what nobody else wants to do. That's humility. That's humble service. That's imitating Christ in His service. You know, looking for things that other people don't see. That's another thing, you know. Uh, there are some people that just see things that nobody else seems to see, and then they get annoyed about it. And what that tells me that there is a gift called service. Some people are uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve, and they seem to see things that nobody else sees, and they get frustrated about that. But the reality is, is that you have a gift in that area. This may be you that I'm talking to. You may not even know this. But that's not to say that we're not all supposed to serve. Don't think that you can say, well, that's not my gift, right? That's just not my gift. We love that one, don't we? There are many reasons why people might not want to serve. Oftentimes, people don't want to because they're afraid. They're scared to serve. They're scared to step out of the boat. They're afraid to come out of their comfort zone and do things that are frightening or intimidating. And You know, that's awesome when I see people do that, and it's a privilege to watch people do things that they're terrified to do or they wouldn't have normally done, but they trust Jesus, and they get out of their comfort zone, and they serve the Lord. They go into a place of discomfort, much like Jesus did with washing those nasty feet, right? 
you know, oftentimes people are just shy, they're introverted, they're afraid for that reason. They're just nervous. People are, oftentimes you have your outgoing people, but a lot of people are just not that way. And it's hard for them. It's hard for them to get outside of their comfort zone and put themselves in the midst of other people. You know, perhaps the disciples had not even considered the need. I don't know. But Jesus served them. He served those who would betray, abandon, and deny. And that is incredible to me. Also, I just want to point out, this is a practical matter. Practical service matters, okay? Practical service is important. Jesus met a very real need of the day. Don't let that escape you. There are always important practical matters, and they amount to people. And so that's one principle I would really like to communicate here, is that ultimately service amounts to people, right? It's not some abstract thing that we're doing just so that we can feel good about ourselves and say we did it. It's always for the benefit of people. It's people business, people business. When we're serving the Lord, when we're using our God-given gifts, it's for the edification of the body of Christ. It's for the building up of God's people. So what we do is always attached to helping, blessing, serving other people. It's people business, you need, we need to really understand that. Ministry is people business. That's something I've learned as a pastor. You know, I've always wanted to teach God's Word. And I think early on in my ministry, uh, to me, it was just teaching the Bible to people, right? I get up, I, you know, communicate some stuff. I feel like I did a decent job of not tripping all over myself. Job well done, right? And that's, that's totally backwards. That's not right. It's, I'm, I'm here to bless people, to encourage, to strengthen, to instruct. And I pray to God that it is and that you get it and that it changes you and that you benefit and grow by it. It's people business. I'm not just up here teaching the, the Bible to teach. I want to bless people, right? And so that's, that's what it is. It's people business, always people business. And so are we in the business of blessing and serving other people and doing it in very practical and tangible ways. Now listen, times and modern amenities have changed. People don't need their feet washed anymore. I mean, maybe they do need their feet washed, but that's something they need to take care of on their own. You can do that, all right? We don't need to do that for each other, right? There are some churches where they, they do that. They wash people's feet, and it's symbolic, and you know, I appreciate that, but that, that just ain't going to, we're not going to do that here, so don't, don't worry about that. You know, if you really want to bless me, wash my car. That would be the modern equivalent. <laughs> that would be the modern day equivalent. Don't wash my feet, wash my car. And so, but that's the idea here. So meeting practical needs, practical needs, and there are no shortage of practical needs. You just got to look around. It necessitates getting to know people in order to actually know their needs. That's the thing about the spiritual gifts. They only function in community. They're not, you can't use the gifts in isolation. They only function in community. And so we have to put ourselves in a place where we know people, where we know needs so that we can meet needs. We got to let our needs be known so that by God's grace, those needs can be met as an extension of love and service and humility, right? And so, um, whether it is giving financially, that's probably one of the most practical needs that always exists. People are struggling. Times are hard. It just always is. And uh, 
you know, that's, that's one way that we serve the Lord because that too is a gift. There is a gift of giving. Some people are just really equipped with this ability to see needs and have a heart of mercy and to want to bless people and be very generous, and God will get them the resources to be able to distribute according to God's heart. Well, I just say that to say, again, that's not, well, that's not my gift, so I don't have to be generous. It doesn't work that way, but I just say that to say that it is service. Giving financially is service, so giving to the local church to which you belong or supporting missionaries or helping family or friends or people that you know are hurting and need help, that is serving the Lord. I want you to know that. That's important. That's a very easy way to go about serving the Lord. And whether you're greeting here at the church or you're in the hospitality ministry, you know, hospitality, it means the love of strangers. And the idea is, is that there are no strangers because as soon as they come in, they're greeted, they're welcomed. It's a warm reception. They don't feel like strangers for long. That is serving the Lord. It's a practical need. Whether you're serving in the media or the sound or the worship or ushers and greeters and deacons or decorating or teaching or Whatever capacity, the children's ministry, that would be one of the greatest needs that we always have, and that is service to the Lord. Jesus loves those kids over there. And if you want to serve like your master, then you're going to serve those little ones over there, point blank. And uh, there's really no excuse not to. If Jesus could wash those feet, if he could humble himself and wash feet, then we have the glorious privilege to serve his little ones over there. Amen? That is serving the Lord. And so are you serving? Have you served? Have you served in such a way as to impact somebody, even if it's indirectly? You know, even if it's indirectly, being a blessing to somebody, um, are you making an impact? Are you serving the Lord? Only you know that. And so I just want to ask that question and have you pray and say, Lord, am I serving you? Is there something more I could be doing? Am I doing nothing at all? Is there anything I can do? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. Let's keep moving. I'm going to wrap this up. C, reasonable service. Verse 16, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. This is reasonable. It just follows that since our master is greater, then we who are lesser would do what he tells us to do. And so the disciples apparently saw such an act as beneath them. But Jesus said that they are not greater than he is. And if he's willing to do that, how much more should they be willing to do it? Who do we think we are if we don't serve the way that our master did? Who do we think we are? Do we think that we're above Jesus? Do we think that we're above Jesus? We may not ever say that, but our actions might actually communicate that. You know, that's what the parables in Matthew 24 and 25 from Jesus, it's all about this. If you were to just take all those parables and summarize them in chapters 24 and 25, you can do this and I would encourage you to do this. Jesus says to the person who does well, On that great day when they stand before their master, what is he going to say? Well done, my good and faithful what? Servant. My good and faithful servant. And then he says this, all these parables. Be a servant that is watching for the master's return. 
So you are serving the Lord expectantly. You're expecting Him to return, and you're serving Him eagerly in anticipation. Be a servant that is found prepared for a soon and sudden return of the Master. He's coming any moment. If you know that, that's really going to affect the way that you live, the urgency with which you serve, right? If you thought He was coming back in 24 hours, in a week, in a month, that would change everything. Well, we're supposed to live like that regardless. Be a servant that is prepared for the master's return to be long delayed. It's interesting to live in both of those realities. You know, we're not going to go sell our house and give it all the proceeds away. We're not going to get radical. We're going we're to hunker down and we're going to invest in the long term, okay? We are serving as though Jesus could come back today. We're serving as though Jesus could come back in 50 years. We are investing into God's kingdom, be a servant that is busy furthering the master's assets while he is away. Remember the story of the talents? Further the master's assets while he is away. He has put stuff in our care. He has given us resources, gifts, things to use for the furthering of his assets. And we'll have to give an account one day for how we used those things. So serve him well. Lastly, it's joyful service. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The way of the servant is a happy life. That's what it means, blessed, happy. Happy, happy, blessed. The way of the servant is a blessed life. It's a happy life. It's a blessing to be used by God, amen? I've been used by Satan plenty in my life. I don't want to be used by Satan. I want to be used by God. And how are we used by God? By serving, serving God and serving others. It's a blessing to get outside of ourselves. When we are very inwardly focused as we frequently are, that's a depressing place to be, isn't it? Well, one cure for depression is to stop focusing so much on ourselves and focus on others, right? Focus on how we can help other people, how we can be used by God. It's a blessing. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. <clears throat> it just, it's more blessed to be at, to, you know, be an, to output, to be used by God, to, to you know, help and serve and give to others. When Jesus says that, it's true. We know that. Is it not a blessing to give? We know this. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's a blessing to walk in the ways of our Lord, to walk in His path, to walk in His ways as a servant. And you know what? You've got to take action to get the blessing. Good intentions doesn't get it done. Amen? He says, blessed are you if you do these things. It's not enough to know these things. The blessing doesn't come unless you do these things. So are we doing these things? Are we serving in our homes? Are we serving in the workplace? Are we serving in our local church? Are we serving in the community? Are we serving wherever Jesus has planted us? I hope you are. And if you're not, I hope you repent because you can serve. There's opportunity all around. Amen? It's the blessed way. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we love you. It's our desire to serve you, to serve you well, to walk in your ways. Thank you for giving us an example. We give you our hearts. We give you our lives. Thank you that we've been served by you. And I pray now, Lord, that you would empower us to serve others. May we return our service to you by serving your people. 
God, help us. God, use us. God, give us the grace to give you glory in our service. Help us to walk humbly before you. Help us to walk humbly before our God. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may God bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine down upon you as he lavishes his riches and grace and mercy upon you this day and this week. May he go before you, strengthen you and your inner man and your inner woman, give you his peace, his joy, his heavenly provision. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.